once again, it's my uh, privilege to open the Word, and I invite you to work, open up Proverbs, or not Proverbs, Psalms. What text am I preaching from again? Is it behind me? Um, pro, uh, Psalms. Psalms 87 is where we're going to be this morning. And uh, last week, we, we, uh, we looked at Psalm 117. It's the shortest psalm in the Psalter, the shortest chapter in the Bible. This week we are looking at one of maybe the most obscure psalms, one that uh, is uh, not dealt with nearly as carefully as what it should be. I think what we're going to find is that this psalm is actually a theological goldmine for us, um, and I'm, I'm really excited to, uh, to open it up with you. By way of introduction, let me just start by saying this. Um, I'm asked every so often, um, as uh, by by folks, or I've asked this question to to people um, in in here, to, to some of you, um, as I've met uh, new new people, where where I'm from or where you're from. I'll, I, I get that question sometimes. Where are you from? And um, you know, it's a, Alaska is a transient place. People come in and out. There's people here for oil or uh, or because of school, because of, uh, of jobs, uh, military. There's there's lots of of uh, transients going on in uh, in Alaska, and particularly in Anchorage. So it's not uncommon to hear that question. I I have to confess, though, maybe you can sympathize. Sometimes I don't know how to answer that question. I feel like it'd be easier if I had been born in one place and had grown up in one place. It'd be easy to answer that question. I. I sometimes don't know what to say. I was born um, in Southern California uh, in a town called El Centro uh, near the Mexican border near Mexicali. Lived there for about a year and a half and then moved to a, a, an even smaller town uh, on the Colorado River, Needles. Um, if you've ever been been there, you, you're, you're just glad you left. There's not much there. Right across from Laughlin, the casinos in Laughlin, Nevada. Um, then uh, about six years old, I moved to uh, Manassas, Virginia, right outside of Washington, D.C., lived there till I was uh, nine, and then uh, family moved to uh, west, northwestern Colorado, a little town called Craig up in the northwest corner near uh, Utah and uh, Wyoming, lived there till I was 16, and then we moved to Fairbanks, and that's where I finished high school and college and met my wife there, got my feet wet in ministry, and then um, got married, and, and then we uh, I spent about five years down in Los Angeles, and then now we're here. We've been here coming on 10 years in Anchorage. So when you ask me, where am I from, I'm not quite sure what to say. <laughs> my, my from California, that's where I was born. My from Fairbanks, that's where I spent the most time. But I'm not quite sure how to answer that sometimes. Um, maybe the safest thing to say, I have a little bit more confidence in, is that uh, I can say, um, you know, I'm from Alaska. I've been here for 22 years now. It's home. Um, I'm from Alaska. You know, I could broaden that even more and say, I, I'm a citizen of the United States. I can show you my passport. It's, it's legit. Um, I, this is my home. That's where I'm from. I'm from the U.S., But um, the reality is, is that I'm also a Christian. And so that means that um, there's, there's a, a paradox that, that is true about myself and, and you if you're a believer. I'm, I, I'm a, a citizen of this country, a, a nation that is part of a, a world of nations. And, uh, and yet at the same time, the Bible describes me as a sojourner. 1 Peter 2, uh, verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners 
and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So as a Christian, I, I find myself in two realities. I am, on the one hand, citizen of a nation here on earth, and at the same time, I am, I'm a sojourner. I'm, I'm, I'm traveling and living in a world that's not my own, and I, I'm, I'm a citizen of another world, a, a world that's not of this world, kingdom that's not of this world. Reality is, is that I have... And you, if you're a believer, you, you have two citizenships. A Christian is a dual citizen. It's a dual citizen. On the one hand, we live in the world. We're a citizen of the world by, by pure physical birth, and uh, there's no getting around that fact. And yet, at the same time, we're simultaneously citizens of another world, the kingdom that's, that's, uh, that's to come. Augustine uh, was one of the most uh, influential and important theologians in the history of Christianity. He uh, was a, uh, a bishop in North Africa, and uh, was part of uh, North Africa was part of the Roman Empire. And uh, when he was ministering there, it was during the decline and the fall of the Roman Empire. There was a, was a cultural emergency going on, and Christians were struggling to understand how they were to relate to the world that they lived in. This Roman world, how, how, how is, uh, the, what's the Christian's responsibility to the culture that he lives in? And, and uh, that was what Augustine was trying to, um, to address in a lot of his writings. In one writing in particular, he talked about two cities. He referred to the city of man and to the city of God. And he wrote a book by that title, The City of God. And he said, surprisingly, that Christians are actually citizens of both of those cities. God, in his wisdom, for some reason, um, in his divine plan, chose to leave Christians in this world as part of the city of man. We belong to the city of God, and yet we at the same time belong to this this, uh, earthly, fallen world. And uh, what he reminds us of is the fact that while man is a citizen of this world, he cannot forget that he is a citizen of another world. That was Augustine's point. We say this dual citizenship even laid out in the Apostle Paul's life. You remember in Acts 22, he was, was preaching to the crowds and uh, got them riled up, got to the point where he was, uh, about, he was arrested, about to be flogged by a Roman soldier. And, uh, and he, uh, he asked whether or not it was lawful for him to whip a Roman citizen. And that really surprised the soldier. The soldier said, I, you're a Roman citizen? I had to purchase my Roman citizen at a high price. And Paul said, I must run, I've been a Roman citizen since I was born. So Paul himself identified himself as, as a citizen of Rome. And at the same time, he can write in Philippians 3.20 uh, to the, the believers there, but our citizenship is in heaven. He got this same dynamic of, of, of citizenship in, in the city of man, citizenship in the city of God. He got it. And what, it, what this really reveals, this dual citizenship, it reveals that um, it is possible for a person to have two birthplaces. Two birthplaces. What you under, have to understand, though, is that your spiritual birthplace is far more important than your physical one. Your, physic, your physical birthplace is, is secondary to your spiritual birthplace. And that's what we discover in this psalm. In Psalm 87. Psalm 87 is a psalm about dual citizenship. It is, a, it is a psalm that proclaims and celebrates that God's sovereign plan involves taking people who are 
citizens of the city of man and making them citizens of the city of God. It's a beautiful thing. That's what we're going to discover here. So and um, with that introduction, let me, let me read our psalm. I'm going to read from a slightly different version than the, what straight out of the ESV, just to capture a little bit more of uh, closer of, of what the, the text says. So you've got a, a translation that's on the, on the screen behind you, um, just to read from Psalm 87, verse 1, a psalm by the sons of Korah, a song. His foundation is on the holy mountains. Yahweh loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. I will mention Rahab and Babylon among those who know me. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush, this one was born there. And to Zion, it will be said, this one and that one were born in her. And the Most High himself will establish her. Yahweh will record when he registers the people, this one was born there. And the singers, like the dancers, will say, all my springs are in you. And then if you look at the, the uh, superscription of Psalm 88, and if you have your Bible, um, this, the uh, beginning of that uh, little title to that psalm is actually the subscription of Psalm 87. They've been misdivided, and Psalm 87 really should end by, with this uh, subscription, a song, a psalm by the sons of Korah to the choir master according to Mahalat Leonoth, which is uh, believed to be uh, meaning uh, to be sung at a dance. <clears throat> so a few things to um, maybe mentioned by way of background is before we dig into the psalm, the superscription, as we just read in the subscription at the end of it, um, indicates that this is written by uh, the sons of Korah. Now, the sons of Korah uh, were Levites, descendants of Kolath, of, uh, of, of the Levites. And uh, David assigned them a special responsibility in the, in the, uh, the tabernacle, and then later on that, ta- that uh, responsibility um, continued after the... Um, the construction of the temple under the reign of Solomon, that the sons of Korah, there was some of their responsibility was to um, write music and perform music for the temple and for the tabernacle. And you see a number of psalms in the Psalter that are by the sons of Korah. It should be a familiar praise. Psalm uh, 42 and 44 through 49, Psalms 84 and 85, and then 87 and 88 are all by the sons of Korah. But not only are they Levites, but they are actually descendant of a man named Korah. And uh, in number 16, you can read about it there later on, but in number 16, a man named Korah decided to make a rebellion against Moses and against Aaron and basically challenge Moses and Aaron's authority. Did God really choose you from among the sons of Levi to lead these people to be priests in the tabernacle? He was joined by many in that insurrection, and God responded to that challenge by causing the ground to open up and swallow Korah, swallow his family, and swallow all the rest of the people who had joined in his insurrection, and they disappeared into the earth, 250 in all. I'm sure it was an amazing thing to see the ground open up and 250 people drop into a sinkhole. Just terrifying. But what we learn later on in the book of Numbers, in Numbers 26, 11, is that Korah's sons did not die with him. They chose not to follow their 
father's rebellion, and God spared them graciously. And so today, to this day, we read psalms that are written by the sons of Korah, uh, and they're written by men who are not ashamed of where they came from. They're not trying to hide their lineage. They boldly proclaim, we are Korahites. We are sons of Korah because we are sons of grace. It's by God's grace that we didn't drop into that, that, uh, that pit as well. And so uh, this, is, this is a psalm that's written by men who understand God's grace and who understand God's sovereignty in all things, and that's exactly what we see in Psalm 87. This is a psalm of God's grace, it's a psalm of God's divine sovereignty, and it's a psalm of God's love for one particular city. So once again, this is, this is a psalm about dual citizenship. And and what we have to remember is that uh, wherever you were born physically, your physical birthplace is far less important than your spiritual one. Where you were born spiritually, where you have citizenship in spiritually is the most important thing. So let's dig in. Let's dig into this psalm. The outline um, that I have for this psalm comes in three parts. We're going to look at Zion's selection, Zion's citizens, and Zion's celebration. Okay, those are our three points. So let's look at the first one. Zion's selection. Zion's selection. Look at verse one with me. It says, its foundation is on the holy mountains. Yahweh loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. I mean, the opening three verses of this psalm are, are highlighting one thing, that God delights in and has sovereignly selected Zion. He delights in it. In other words, Zion is a special city and a special for for three reasons. For one, it's it's special because it is divinely founded. You see that in verse 1. His foundation is on the holy mountain. Now you could argue that Zion is... Zion is a humanly founded city. After all, you can trace its roots all the way back to uh, ancient, uh, ancient times, the time of Abraham when he uh, interacted with Melchizedek, who was priest of the Most High and king of Salem. That's ancient, ancient Jerusalem. But uh, we've, we find a mention of Jerusalem during the time of David, when David conquered what was a fortress city, of the Jebusites, and David conquered it, he enfolded it into his kingdom, and it became known as the city of David. Zion was first associated with the city of David. Later, um, when David brought the Ark of the Covenant into that city, um, the temple complex began to be established on the hill above the city of David, and, and so Zion began to be associated not just with the city of David, but then when, with uh, the, the temple complex there, and then eventually Jerusalem and Zion became synonymous. You could refer to either one, and it meant the same thing. It's one city. But uh, that's from a human perspective. From a human perspective, it's just a city. From a human perspective, it was just built by people. From God's perspective, it's his city. It's his city. Isaiah 14.32 says, What will one answer the messengers of the nation? Yahweh has founded Zion. It's pretty clear cut. This is no human city. This is God's city. He has founded it. It's divinely founded. It's a holy city. Founded on the holy mountains. It's referring to all the mountains that are surrounding Jerusalem. 
It's a divinely founded city. It's also a divinely loved city. Look at verse 2. Yahweh loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. The dwelling places of Jacob, it could refer to various cities, all the other cities and dwellings and villages that are throughout Israel, but I think it probably... uh, uh, more likely refers to all of the various places where the Ark of the Covenant had resided before it found its final home in Jerusalem, before David brought it in. The Ark of the Covenant had been in a lot of places. Gilgal, Shiloh, Nob, Gibeah, Beth Shemesh. It had been in a lot of places. And each one of those places was set apart. Each one was special because of the very presence of the Ark of the Covenant. But, uh, but there is one city that stands out above them all. It's because that city was chosen by God, sovereignly selected, sovereignly founded, sovereignly loved. It's the city of Zion. Ancient rabbis had written this statement. It says, the king has a palace in every province, but which palace is best loved by him? The answer is the palace which is, is in his own province. I travel not very frequently, and especially lately, I don't travel very much at all, but when I do travel, I enjoy going to other places. I enjoy seeing new, new places, doing things outside of the state, um, and I love most of all coming back home. <laughs> I, I love my home. I love my bed. I love my home. I love the comforts, and I, I'm familiar with it. It's my home, that, and, and that's, that's Yahweh as well. That's God. He has his home that he is sovereignly placed in one particular city on this enormous planet, and that's Zion, that's Jerusalem. He loves Jerusalem. But his love goes beyond affection. It's not just an affection. It's not just fond feelings toward a city. Love in the Old Testament, love, that word, talks about choice. It talks about sovereign choice. You can look at that in Deuteronomy 7. Turn back there maybe for a minute. Uh, Deuteronomy 7. And in verse 6 of Deuteronomy 7, God is speaking to his people, talking about why he chose them. Why did he choose Israel rather than some other nation? And he says, Yahweh, verse 6, your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It is not because you are more in number than any other people that Yahweh set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because Yahweh loves you. Yahweh's love means a choice that he's made. He has sovereignly chosen his love to be placed. You say the same thing in Romans chapter 9 when when, uh, Paul is talking about uh, Jacob and Esau. But uh, he has said, Jacob I have loved. That's sovereign choice. It's not just affection, it's choice. Jerusalem is not just, it's not the most beautiful place in Israel. You could go up to Mount Hermon and see a much more beautiful place in that region. It's not the most defensible place, uh, but it is the place that God loves. It is his city that's there. It's the city that he founded, the city that he loves, and it is the city that he honors. It is divinely honored. That's what makes it special. Verse 3, it says, Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. Glorious things. It's like the psalmist is turning to the city itself and talking to it like it's a person. There's amazing, glorious, magnificent things that are spoken of you. 
epic plans. You can look all throughout the prophets and see what the prophets tell us about the future of Jerusalem and what God's plans for them there. And see how he loves it. You can go all the way to the book of, uh, of Revelation and see John's words for the new Jerusalem. You know, how he describes it. This is a city with a future. This is a city that the only way that you could talk about it was with glorious things. Glorious things are spoken of you. And it's, the question is, who's doing the speaking? Maybe it's people. Maybe it's angels. I think it's God. I think it's God himself. The, the very one who founded it, the very one who loves it, is the one who is now proclaiming the glories of the city that he has plans for. It's a God who is, honors this city. The psalmist refers to the city in verse 3 as the city of God. That's incidentally where Augustine got the title for his book from and the theme of the book is from this psalm, the city of God. It's God's city, founded by him, loved by him, and honored by him. And, and the theme of that, that God's divine electing choice of Zion um, leads us right into the next section, the next point. We've seen Zion's selection. Let's look at Zion's citizens, Zion's citizens. If the first part of this was all about God's selection of the city, this, then this, this section, this, uh, the next section from verses 4 to 6 is, is all about the selection of its citizens. And this is the heart of this psalm. This is where everything is going to. If this, we're talking about a very special city, and if this city is special, then its citizens are going to be special, right? That's what you would expect. That's exactly what we find. So just to organize our thoughts here, I've, I've broken this up into, into some, some parts here. And the, the first part is this, citizens mentioned. Citizens mentioned. In, in verse 5, we're introduced to these citizens, and it's, it's quite a shock. If you were a Jewish reader reading this, this would be quite a shock to come across this list. I will mention Rahab, it says, and Babylon among those who know me. Behold, Philistia and Tyre and Cush. This is not what we would expect to see on a list of citizens of Zion. It's kind of like last week when we talked about this unlikely participants in God's praise. Well, this is unlikely citizens of the city of God. Rahab was initially the name of a, was a mythical sea monster. You see it in Job 9, Job 26, Psalm 89. Kind of picturing primeval forces that, are, that, are ari- that arise against God, against his authority, but that God squashes. And, and in, in Isaiah 30, verse 7, Rahab becomes a poetic name for Egypt because they seem to embody the very idea of this power against God. And so here we have right off the bat, the first reference is to Egypt, the great power to the south of of Israel. If you're Israelite and we're playing a word association game and I say Egypt, you think what? Slavery, Pharaoh, bondage, right? That's what you think of Egypt, enemy. And yet here they are listed. And then look at the next, look at the next name. It says, among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Babylon. 
this great superpower to the north of Israel, the, the, the nation that would eventually take away Judah into exile in 586 B.C. So combined, these two nations, Egypt and Babylon, they really represent the two superpowers of the ancient Near East. And throughout the history of Israel, those two and Assyria were vying for who was going to sit on the international throne, and, and Israel's caught up in the middle of it. It's always just a pawn in the, in the, the international throne game. And then next in line, we have some lesser powers. First, there's Philistia, the great sea peoples. They were perennial enemies of Israel, right on the west of of Israel. Goliath was was part of the Philistines. Next, you have Tyre. It's a small little nation that's right off, kind of on the the top end of of the border of Israel, right on on an island. They had uh, Tyre. And uh, it was a wealthy nation. It was a nation that, uh, for as small as it was, um, uh, Ezekiel 28 pronounces a curse and a, a prophecy against the king of Tyre because of his wickedness and his, uh, the, the wealth that he had. So you have Tyre, and then, and then finally there's Cush. Cush um, has usually been associated with the region around the Nile in East Africa, kind of, uh, sometimes associated with Ethiopia or the Nubian kingdom. Uh, but it really represents <clears throat> nations that are, relatively speaking, far off, far off from Israel. So as you combine all of this from Rahab, Egypt, to Babylon, to Tyre and, and the Philistines, and then finally Cush, you're really talking about all of the nations that are in the surrounding area around Israel. They're all really represented here just by, by certain names. They're just all represented. So we could call this an international list. From great to, to small, from far to near, they're all represented as citizens of Zion. It's amazing. It doesn't matter that they're Israel's enemies. It doesn't matter that they're currently hostile to God. This is a vision of the future. And in this vision, the great city of God, Zion, becomes the home of all who come to worship Him. I mean, this is the great anticipation of the Old Testament. If you go to Isaiah for a minute, In Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah presents the same kind of vision. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, he says, It shall come about in the latter days that the mountains of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. That's a glorious picture. It goes on to talk about how nations aren't going to war against each other. They're going to turn their implements of warfare into implements of, of production. It's a beautiful picture of God sitting on his throne. And his throne is in where? Jerusalem the center of the universe. We may talk about our solar system as being, um, as being uh, centered on the sun, but from God's perspective, it's centered on Jerusalem. The entire universe comes to Jerusalem because that is where God is. And Psalm 87 joins in that grand vision, picturing the nations, not just as sojourners, not just as visitors, not just as green card holders, but as citizens of Zion. And how permanent is this? 
How sure is this? That brings us to our next part. Go from citizens mentioned to citizens registered. Citizens registered. Excuse me. If you look at verse 6. Their citizenship is so sure that the people coming from the nations are said to be registered in the official record of Zion's registry. Verse 6 says, Yahweh will record when he registers the people. It's, it's kind of like God is being pictured as that, that, that customs agent when you're trying to get back into the country. And he's grabbing your, your, uh, your passport and he's swiping it. And, and you know, in, in this case, it's a computer that pops up. But for him, it's a book. It's a book of the registry of the citizens of Zion. And he's saying these, these, the, the, the citizen, these, these individuals from these nations, their names are going to be written in that book. This isn't the first time that we see the idea of a, of a book in the Bible. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 He's talking about the end times, talking about the, the, the tribulation that's going to befall Israel before Christ comes. But it says, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there should be a time of trouble. That's the tribulation, such as never has been seen uh, since um, there was a nation till that time. And then he says this, but at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Written in the book. Isaiah says the same thing in Isaiah 4, verse 3. He says, And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. So there is a book, and it has the names of all of Israel who are official citizens of Zion. But by the time we get to the New Testament, we look at the book of Revelation and Revelation 21, we realize that that book doesn't just have names of Jews in it. John describes the new Jerusalem that replaces the old one, and he describes it as coming out of heaven, and he says in verse 22 of Revelation 21, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God and the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will even or will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, for only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. John's vision is of a whole of a city that's completely holy. God and Christ are at its center. It is the nexus of the world, it's the central metropolis of worship. And the nations come to it, nations bringing in their glory and their cultural contributions, bringing them in. And they can enter because their names are found in the book. Their names are recorded in the registry of the people. They belong. Now, how does this happen? How, how, does, how, does, how can God record someone who was born somewhere else and record them as being born in Zion? How does that happen? How can, he, how can somebody be counted and registered as a, 
citizen of this city when they were never born there. Well, that, that brings us to a third part. We've seen citizens mentioned, citizens registered, now citizens reborn. Citizens reborn. This is, this is how it happens. These foreigners are reborn. They're reborn in Zion. You say, what? <laughs> this is, that's the entire point the psalm is getting at. These foreign-born citizens are reborn. It says it three times. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, it says, I will mention Rahab and Babylon among those who know me. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there. And then in verse 5, it says, And of Zion it will be said, This one and that one were born in her. And then in verse 6, Yahweh will record when he registers the people, This one was born there. Three times he makes that statement. What's going on? Well, simply this. God is going to count Zion as the birthplace of everyone who comes to him in faith. Everyone who comes to serve the king will be counted as if they were born in Zion. With all the rights and all the privileges of a, of a, of a naturally born citizen of Zion, he will count even to those who were never born there. It doesn't matter that they weren't physically born there. This isn't physical birth. This is spiritual birth. It doesn't matter that it's we're, we're, you were naturally born. This isn't natural birth. This is supernatural. It doesn't matter who your mother is because according to God and from God's perspective, Zion is your mother. In fact, if you look at verse 5, in verse 5 when it says, and of Zion it is said, in, in the Greek Old Testament, the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the Greek translators translated the beginning of verse 5 as Mother Zion. And Paul picks up on that when he says in Galatians 4.26, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. She becomes the mother of all those who come in faith and are reborn in Zion. It's all because these foreigners, these lifelong enemies of Israel and enemies of God, they're going to be regarded by God himself and registered as native-born citizens of Zion. God is actually going to impute citizenship to them. Now let's make one thing clear. This is not something that these people can accomplish on their own. Let me ask you this. Did you decide when you were born or where you were born? No, none of us do. We don't have that power. We don't have that power. Maybe your parents had a certain amount of power over when you were born or where you were born, but you don't. You can't will yourself into, into a physical birth. Uh, neither can somebody will themselves into this kind of birth either. John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So that, from a, from a human perspective, that's, that's faith in Christ. That's the gospel call going out and the responsibility of every individual to respond to the gospel in faith. Okay, so that's the human side of things. But then in verse 13, it's, it talks about the, the divine side. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of the will of God. Who is responsible for your birth? It's not you. It's God. Yes, you exercise saving faith, but what was happening 
in your heart as you were exercising saving faith was God was going in there first and he was breaking up the hard and stony heart that rejected him for so long. He was opening up the eyes. He was shining light into that heart. He was illuminating you to see the truth. You were being born again and out of that, out of that regeneration comes faith. But it starts with God. He's the first mover in all of this. It is God who brings about this birth, just as it is God who records the names that are written in the book of the registry of the great city. You remember a, a certain encounter that um, Jesus had with a Pharisee named Nicodemus? Remember he came to Jesus by night and he, he wanted to talk to Jesus. And, um, and Nicodemus uh, he said, Rabbi, we, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for you, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. This is uh, John 3, verse 2. And uh, Jesus does not answer warmly, <laughs> and he doesn't answer particularly um, in a subtle way. He saw right through the flattery. He saw to the heart of the matter, and so he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you, one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus is getting right to the heart of the problem, a problem that Israel had had for centuries, that Israel for far too long had put a lot of stock in their physical lineage. And this is exemplified by the Pharisees. In fact, a little bit later on in the book of John, in John chapter 8, verse 38, Jesus is having an intense interaction with the Pharisees. And uh, he says to them, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And the Pharisees, remember what they said? Abraham is our father. We're set. I know where I'm going. I know my place in God's kingdom because I have Abraham for my father. This was Israel's problem. This was a problem that Paul admitted that he had. Do you remember in Philippians uh, chapter 3 when he says, you know, if anyone has, thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, right? I'm circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I mean, this, this guy put a lot of stock in his physical lineage, his pedigree. And that was Israel's problem too. Jesus is exposing all of that. He's exposing all of it. He's saying it doesn't matter that you're a Jew. It doesn't matter that you have Abraham for your father. You need to be born again. If you want to see the kingdom of God, you need to be born again. Now, this doesn't compute for Nicodemus, and so he responds, how can a man be born when he's old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's asking, you know, the same kind of natural question we might ask. How can anybody affect that? Nobody has power over that. How can God expect someone to be born again when they can't affect their own birth? He's not understanding where Jesus is coming from. So Jesus, I mean, he just responds. He says it again, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then he says this, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's physical. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit and spiritual. He says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Do not be surprised by this. And then he goes and he, and he gives an illustration of all this. He uses the wind. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it. You do not know where it comes from or where it is going. 
So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. That is to say, you have no power over the wind, right? You know when it's there. You feel it. You feel the, the wind on your, on your face. You, you see the trees wrestle. You know it's happening. You know it's there, but you can't control where the wind goes, and you can't control where the Spirit of God goes or who he makes alive. You don't have control over that. At this point, Nicodemus is incredulous. He says, Jesus, how can these things be? How can these things be? I mean, he, this is completely outside of Nicodemus' theological grid. He does not understand that there is there's something that needs to happen, but man doesn't have any control over it. Because as far as he knows, he is a Pharisee of the Pharisees, right? He is the teacher of Israel. He is, everything is in your control. They're legalists. That's what makes Jesus' words sting so badly. He says, Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? I mean, Nicodemus was not just a teacher. He was the teacher of Israel. He was the premier theological mind of the nation. And he didn't understand these things. But he should have. He should have understood because it's right here, plain as day in Psalm 87. Entrance into the kingdom. Citizenship in Zion has nothing to do with your physical birthplace. It has everything to do with your spiritual birthplace. So it doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter who your father was. It doesn't matter um, where you were born, where your nationality is. It doesn't matter if you've grown up in the church your entire life. You're so familiar with this building. You're so familiar with all the ins and outs of church, and you've been doing this forever. It doesn't have nothing to do with it. If you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. You must be spiritually born. There are no physically born citizens in the city of God. There are only spiritually born And uh, if it was up to me, guess what? I would never see the kingdom of God. Neither would you. I would never see the kingdom of God. If it was up to me, I would never never be a citizen of Zion. I don't have it in me. I I can't birth myself. I can't even picture that either. I I can't make myself be born again. I can't do it. But thanks be to God, it's not up to me, is it? It's up to God. It's the whole point of this psalm. God does it all. God does it all. He's the one who is from the beginning founded Zion. He has established her as the spiritual birthplace of everyone who believes. And that's something to celebrate. In fact, that's how the psalm ends. It ends with a celebration. We've seen Zion selection, Zion, selection, Zion citizens, and now Zion celebration. Look at verse 7. It ends with a party. The very idea of being born again as the spiritual citizens of Zion is reason enough to throw a party. It says, and the singers, like the dancers, will say, all my springs are in you. What makes you excited? What, 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 what makes you excited? You know, said a child going off to college, getting, graduating high school, I mean, is it... Is it a friend getting married? Is it uh, an anniversary? Is it a birthday? What, what makes you excited? Well, what makes the citizens of Zion excited is the fact that they've been born again and been granted citizenship in a city they never belonged to and never should belong to. And yet God graciously has granted them citizenship there. 
That is, that is to celebrate. And so there are singers and there are dancers, in fact, that might give us a clue of the setting by which this psalm uh, was originally done. They're all proclaiming together, all my springs are in you. Springs, fresh water that's flowing out of the ground. So life-giving to an ancient Near Eastern town or a village. And here the entire city is pictured as a spiritual wellspring of all that is good and all that is precious and all that is gracious and all the good things that God gives to his people are found in the city of Zion, the city of God, bubbling over with every good gift from above. So we go back to the start where we started. Every believer is a dual citizen. Every believer. We're simultaneously citizens of the world. We're citizens of the nations of this world. But we're citizens of the city of man. But we're also citizens of Zion, the city of God. And we can take pride in, um, in being a citizen of a country that we live in. That's okay. I mean, I, I, I do. I, I know I do. I'm glad that I am a citizen of the United States. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. Despite all of the issues going on, despite the, 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 the faults, and I'd rather be here than anywhere else. And on the flip side, I know that there are others who are not enamored with the nations that they are citizens of. They would leave if they could. Some of them can't afford to. Some of them aren't allowed to. But either one, whether or not you... You love where you live or you don't love you love where you live. You're also a citizen of somewhere else. Whatever citizenship you have on this earth, you have a far more important citizenship in the kingdom of God, the city of the great king. And that means that ultimately our citizenship is in heaven, our inheritance is in heaven. So we are really sojourners. We are travelers. We are ambassadors of the king. And we've been born again to a living hope. We've been born not of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but we have been born by what? The will of God.